Welcome to an episode of Weekly Weights. We lift weights and we are mates. On the weekend, we go on dates. Weekly Weights, Tim and Footy. Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Weekly Weights. This is episode 125. I'm Alex Hayes, and joining me is Will Berkman. And joining us is Steve Denovi from across the pond in the United States. How are you, Steve? Good. I'm happy to be a returning guest, and good to see your beautiful faces again. So because you are a returning guest, you don't need to introduce yourself because everyone knows who you are already. So let's just get right into it. Today, we wanted to talk about the basically the landscape of powerlifting at the moment um, and, you know, what's been going on. So I guess because you're from the States, we'll start with the American stuff. So did you want to quickly explain to us um, the happenings between USAPL and the IPF in the last couple of months? Yeah, I could probably go for an hour, but I'll try and give the, the brief synopsis of what went down. Basically, I mean, I mean, the USAPL is large. Um, how like at, at its, I, I for it's not a, well, it's APU now, but PA back when it was in the IPF, how many lifters did you all have? Like five or two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I don't know. How many would we have had Alex? Like hundreds, but not I think, thousands. I think a few thousand, I think about 2000. Okay. Really? So yeah, okay. we have 20,000 just in the USAPL side. And then. Um, it's going to get kind of a tangent that will be relevant is we probably have another 20,000 plus on the untested side. So we have a lot, we have a lot of lifters. Um, because of that, the logistics of the USAPL is going to be a bit different than probably any other federation within the IPF umbrella. And so we do test with WADA at all of our national meets. Um, and then all of our out of meat testing for world's level athletes to fulfill. I mean, we actually, in sense, we do more water tests than any other country. And people say, oh, well, that's because you have 20,000 lifters. Well, no, that's that's only for like the thousand to 2000 lifters who compete nationally. We do. I think we had 700 water tests in 2019. Um, then at the local level, because here's here's the big thing that we I mean, if you covered looked at this at all, what the, one of the big arguments USAPL makes is. At any given weekend, we might have eight to 12 local meets around the country. Um, to be able to fulfill the needs to keep a drug-free platform at a local level and be able to afford this by any means, the USAPL does non-WADA approved tests. We actually have some partnership with a, a independent lab um, and they simply test for steroids. It doesn't test for weed or all the other things that like WADA tests do. It just simply tests for steroids. It's a very simple test to keep the cost down so that we can be able to test 10% of athletes at a local level. Um, back in, I think it was 2018, this has been an issue for a while. IPF said, no, stop that. And the USAPL said, no, we're going to keep doing it. Um, that's, we're, there's no way we can fulfill the WADA test at all eight to 12 meets every single week. And we do, um, not only because we can't afford it, but two, USADA doesn't have enough people nor cares enough about powerlifting to send out 12 agents to 12 different States for 12 different meets. Um, so it's been going on forever. Um, this year, I guess some more things were passed by IPF that really kind of nailed down, like, if you don't do WADA approved testing, we're going to not going to be okay with it. So that's obviously been a thing. IPF is saying, stop doing the local, not stop doing local meat testing. But if you're going to do local meat testing, it's got to be WADA approved, approved tests. USAPL has been hard on their stance that, nope, at the local level, we're going to keep doing our in-house uh, third party or in-house testing. 
And then finally, that has led to where we are now, where the IPF eventually just suspended all of our lifters. Uh, within that, there's been uh, some other things too. Like at the, Ar the Arnold last year, there was a big thing where um, we were, the Arnold was IPF approved uh, through the Pro-American. There was world records set. And then retroactively, like a month later, the IPF says, no, we're actually not going to like count any of that stuff. And we're going to, we're going to strip all of those world records and all those things. Um, so it's just been this weird little petty battle. Um, and I would say to an extent, neither side is necessarily wrong. Um, I, I'm a bit biased. I think USAPL is doing the right thing. And I think there's, I'm not in love with the IPF, but at the same time, they, they have their values and I get why, like the IPF wants IOC recognition. They want to be in the Olympics for some reason to put single ply in the Olympics that no one cares about. And then for some reason, all these hundreds of thousands of raw lifters throughout the world are supposed to cater to these 12 equipped lifters that want to go to the Olympics. Um, by doing all of this waterproof stuff. And with the USAPL, I mean, the fact of the matter is in the United States, especially, I don't think the Olympics is held at near the same esteem as some other countries, um, especially like a, a lot of the European countries and the Eastern Bloc countries. Yeah, it, It's cool, but like like weightlifting, they don't even get a stipend from our government. Like it, it's it's not like a bit like it's, it's not as huge of a deal. So in the US, I don't think many people care about making it to the Olympics. The USAPL for sure doesn't. And so to be able to logistically do what they want and keep a drug-free platform while we have a massive untested and steroid presence within the United States, they don't want to follow that same protocol. So can I, can I just insert myself a little bit? <clears throat> I want to, I want to sort of backtrack to what sounds like the crux of the issue, which is the drug testing, or at least that's the thing that really brought this all to a head and just clarify things for people who aren't quite on the same page. So in order to keep at least an ostensibly drug-free platform, it sounds like the USAPL is wanting to test about 10% of lifters at a local level. Correct. And then at the national level, whatever it happens to be, you know, 10% plus or minus people who set records on the top few or something. Um, what is roughly the relative difference in cost between water-approved testing and non-water-approved testing? I could, I could be wrong on these numbers. So these are estimates because um, I have to pay for part of it. Like that's another thing as a meat director. If I had to do a waterproof test, I can't afford it. I can't even afford meats in the first place. I don't make any money off them. I think a water test, it can range anywhere between 1,000 to 2,000. The USAPL is pretty hard stance on it. It's about 2,000. Some other countries have been like, eh, it costs us 1,000. You're lying. Whatever. 1,000 to 2,000. The, the tests we do at the local level, I think they're more around like 300-ish. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, obviously it's, it's, it's a lot cheaper it's a, yeah. and as well as the fact that like, we, one of the reasons they do it is like, they don't care about catching someone who smokes weed at a local level. They care about catching the people who are taking steroids so that they can be caught before they get to a national level so that we don't even have to get to that point. So catch right. the dirty stone, as I say, <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, <laughs> we need firm family values at local powerlifting. Meets, but the okay. So, given that we're sort of talking about a, a like five to tenfold difference in cost, it then sort of comes down to a revenue issue, right? You've got this really big organization. If we've got whatever it is, you know, a thousand people competing every weekend, and we're wanting to do a hundred drug tests, that's costing you twenty k per weekend or whatever to do IPF level or not IPF water level testing. And it's only costing you a few thousand dollars to do the non IPF level testing. So from a USAPL athlete perspective, I'm presuming it also comes down to a question of like, 
how little drug testing are we willing to tolerate within our federation? So like how how stringently can we claim to be drug free? Were you to comply with um, with the IPF demands and do only wider level testing and only test 2% of your athlete pool because that's what you can afford, how would that go down with your athletes? And would the IPF still accept you guys as being sort of sufficiently strict in your drug testing? We could not test anyone and we are WADA compliant because over the half the nations in the IPF don't drug test. So like we can just not test at all and then we're WADA compliant, which is one of the the ridiculous aspects of all this. Um, yeah, obviously, I think we could go down. I mean, like if, if could we go down to like 5% and it be somewhat manageable? Yes, because um, not every local level meet is going to be hounded with people that really need to be drug tested. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is probably the majority of local level meets don't have competitors at a higher level. Um, I think uh, one, I, I think this is around the world, but I think one misconception is that it's random drug testing. It's never been random. We vary, like as a meat director, we very much choose. I'm picking the people either that have the highest total or look like they might be taking something. Uh, or I have prior knowledge that they could possibly be taking something. We're choosing them. Um, but then it's tough because the, the biggest thing is it's more of a gatekeeping. Like, if every single person knows that if they're going to do a USAPL meet, that there's a high likelihood they get tested, it's going to gatekeep from people getting out. If we instead say, eh, we're only going to test at some meets, we're only going to test one person at each meet, people are going to be more likely to think they can kind of wiggle through, which is actually an issue, I believe, in USA weightlifting. USA weightlifting does not test at the local level. And I don't, I, I don't have great knowledge of this, but from what I know, there's a bit more issues of people sneaking from the local level into the national level. Um, where I think we do a pretty good job of catching people at the local level. I, I've actually, I've, I've had a meet where I popped someone. Um, it, it happens for sure. And I don't, we don't tend to have very many people get popped at the national level because of that, I believe. Um, complete tangent, but given that you're choosing who gets drug tested, how does it feel to pop somebody? Did you feel like a bit of vindication? Oh, or yeah. were you like disappointed? Okay, so you felt happy. No, like, I was yeah, happy. Got him. This dude was on stuff too. He had the second right. highest TE ratio in the past five years of anyone in the USAPL. That dude must have injected straight into his butt cheek what, what that morning. That? What do you say? What year was that? 2019. Okay, I think I know who it is. <laughs> name and shame, Alex. Go I don't on. know his name. He's a 105, right? No, 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 no. Okay. And this is just a local meet. No, I mean, there's de- there's definitely some other ones that have been popped. Are oh, you thinking Adrian Nickelbust? He was a 105 that beat Bryce's record. Yeah, and he got that, popped. that's the one. Yeah, that's the yeah. one I was thinking of. Yeah. But guess okay. what? He got popped at a local level before he ever made it to nationals. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, and I guess that's the argument for having that more stringent testing there. Because the other thing is that the USAPL nationals is – you know, in some sense, the most competitive powerlifting competition that is run worldwide. So the integrity of that competition is very important as well for the sport as a whole. You don't want a whole lot of people who are using drugs to have snuck through to that level and then have to be retroactively um, discounting scores. Alex had something to say. Steve, do you know if there are particular guidelines that they follow at USAPL Nationals with regards to testing winners and record holders and stuff like that? So that has changed. Um, it used to, when USAPL had more, uh, uh, control over it, anyone who wins and anyone who sets an American record gets drug tested, no ifs, ands, or buts. That is no longer the case. 
USAPL has no control over it. I know of multiple people who set American records who were not drug tested. I know of people who won and were not drug tested because now it's based on the supposed uh, WADA algorithm that then chooses people. So no, that's that's another issue that I don't, I don't agree with necessarily. I mean, if you set an American record, you should be drug tested. Like you shouldn't be able to set an American record and just walk out the door willy nilly. Yeah. So the USAPL was suspended from the IPF and was that sort of was that um, was that supported by the majority of USAPL lifters? Were the majority of people saying we would rather go our own ways than compromise? It's it's a little bit of both ways. Um, so I, I think the USAPL did one thing really bad. Um, there are two things really bad. Um, one. Um, I'm sure you guys saw the post that they said we were suspended for drug testing too much. That was yeah. the exact wording. Mm, that's not really the case. We we didn't get tested for we, we got tested because we were doing drug tests that weren't compliant. Um, and that annoyed after, some people. That kind of got some people kind of mad at USAPL. Um, the second thing is since it was so close to IPF worlds, we tend to be uh, short minded and nostalgic. Um, there were a lot of people four or five weeks out excuse me, that were ready to go to Worlds. And so they held that at a very high value. We, we tend to overvalue things we already possess. Um, so these people who already have Worlds qualifications four weeks out, they tended to overvalue the, the importance of IPF Worlds, in my opinion. Not that it isn't important, but they overvalue it versus if this was like eight months away from IPF Worlds. And I was like, ah, who cares? We got nationals coming up in two months. So I think it was a little bit split. There's definitely people that value international competition. I think international competition is super cool. I think it's awesome. I think that was a great part about it. But at the same time, I think there's enough people in the USAPL that are just kind of getting annoyed of the fact that like we're almost we're we're the biggest federation in in the IPF. We're we're arguably the most influential. We have the best lifters, um, and somehow it's it's not seen that like there there is going to have to be a different logistics and uh, principles set up for a federation that has twenty plus thousand lifters versus 500 lifters. You can't apply the same rules. Like you can't say Amazon has to follow the same exact rules as a mom and pop shop that has one location. Like they're not the same. You're going to have to have a different kind of uh, a setup for how that's kind of controlled things to be able to manage drug testing. And I think that might've been part of the issue with powerlifting Australia too. Like as things grow and have certain ways, like you, you got to have some type of uh, ability to be able to kind of manage that as well as like, I don't understand fully with WADA, but like None of these other sports that go to the Olympics test at the amateur level. They don't have to WADA test at high school. Local level is an amateur level. I, I don't get how that necessarily requires us to use WADA tests when all these other sports do not do that. So that, that's where I got a little confused, and I think some people got annoyed. Is We really just wanted to protect the local level because the fact is that's 90% of our lifters. It's only like 0.1% that are going to world-level meets. So there's There's a... There's a sort of weird contradiction in powerlifting internationally where it's a large enough sport that there is a big international body and there's some demand for uniformity in rules and, you know, and like drug testing and so on, federation, federation. But in spite of its size, it's not a wealthy enough or like government supported sport in the ways that many others are that actually give it the resources to do all of those things. And so you either have to have sort of quite arbitrary rules that perhaps penalize larger federations like yours or a really ramshackle arrangement that almost looks disorganized in spite of the size of the sport. It's a bit, 
it's a bit weird. I'm not really sure what the what the possible solutions to those problems are. I believe the US. I mean, I don't get why this. I maybe I might be wrong in this, but I thought I heard rumors that the USAPL actually proposed that fact that like nationals is a federation and local level is a federation, and it's a separation of the two. And the national level will be under WADA compliance, and the local level is an amateur level, and they can then qualify to go to this other federation. That may have been a rumor. I don't know because there's a lot of hearsay going back and forth. Um, but if that was the case, I don't. I don't see how that isn't uh, a viable option. So yeah, that, that was the uh, first thing that I, I thought of when you were speaking was: is would it be possible to separate the two and have one WADA compliant and the other one, you know, under your testing regulations? From what I know, that was talked about. I just don't know how much it was talked about because one thing, I mean, I, I this is where it's uh, again, I'm biased towards the USAPL. Um, but within that, like, it doesn't sound like either side talked to each other much. Um, there wasn't much back and forth. And I don't know where the fault lies. Um, both are kind of saying the other wasn't being cooperative. And so who knows? It was just kind of a sucky situation. And it doesn't help anyone. Like even even if you're taking sides either way, like no one's benefiting here. IPF lifters are not benefiting by the US not being there. It just seemed like two toddlers digging their heels in the sand and just like ignoring each other, you know, like it just it just seemed like the, the worst managed situation, which helped no one. Yeah, and for sure. I don't I don't like I said, I don't think I would like if someone wants to say neither side's at fault, but both sides are at fault at the same time. That's completely true. Neither neither was correct, but at the same, both are kind of going towards their values. The USAPL wants drug testing at all levels and clean sport, and that was their value. And then the IPF wants their IOC recognition. Whether someone cares about that or not, that's what that's what they're trying to go towards. So, what are the implications for the credibility of the IPF? Because the US represents some large portion, like ten percent of their member base or it did. So what does this mean now for the credibility of their competitions and their claim to being, you know, the, the world federation? So, I mean, there, I know for a fact, there's a lot of people that don't uh, outside of the U S that won't like this opinion, but like, fortunately we did have lifters able to go under the U S Virgin islands, but if they did not, I not, I don't know how you can necessarily call IPF worlds worlds. Because we like you guys have federations in, in Australia too that probably have a worlds and you everyone kind of laughs like that's not actually a world championship. Um, now even without the U.S., the IPF is still uh, competitive. France in particular is extremely competitive. Italy's on the uprise. Russia's is very competitive. But the fact of the matter is, I think if all of our lifters go, I think we win well over half of the weight classes, um, if not more. Um, and the fact that, and then again, going to like raw nationals, if you take our top five from raw nationals and put them in IPF worlds, we most likely get four out of the five top spots in every single weight class. So it's, it's an unpopular opinion outside of the U S but the fact of the matter is that I think it does reduce the, the credibility of IPF worlds. If the U S is not involved in it. There were a couple of weight classes that were actually made more fun because there were no U S lifters. Like the 74th, for instance, was a really close battle at the end. And had Taylor been there, it would have, he would have won by 100 kilos and, you know, no one would have cared. I, I, I agree with that completely in the sense of competition because I, I, I very much value the fact that I like competition. That's why Ron Ashley's life, I think, is the best meet in the world because from, from top to bottom, is, it is the closest competition. And there's definitely in the IPF some very close battles. It actually kind of stinks sometimes when Taylor goes, puts up an 840 kilo total, out totals everyone by 120 kilos, and it's no fun. It's just the Taylor Atwood show. 
Um, so yeah, it makes it more fun in that sense, but in the sense of the credibility of being a true world champion, um, if the U S long-term is no longer involved, which I don't think will be the case, there'll be a new affiliate or something's going to happen. Um, it, it's different because you, you know that there are lifters that are not there that would fairly easily walk away with it. There's a bit of a tragedy from an athlete perspective as well, that I would hate to be somebody who won my first world title and then had people sort of throwing shade on it and saying you wouldn't have won were X and Y person there, which may or may not be true. Like if you're the 74 kilo champion, it's probably a fair criticism. But at the same time, you can only beat the people who show up. And so again, the absence of the US in some ways penalizes other people, completely innocent, high achieving, hardworking athletes too, um, because their because their achievements are considered less legitimate by others. Don't you think? Yeah, I don't. I don't disagree there. It, it there, it's a lose lose for the athletes all around. Um, I don't. I don't disagree with my opinion that it decreases the uh, prestige of winning that title when there are obviously people outside that are could easily win it. Um, but it does kind of stink for the athletes having to know that and that that there's going to be that criticism there because yes, like Alexander Erickson won that phenomenal meet, came back after some rough squats to be able to be the only guy that goes three for three on deadlifts, wins the seventy four kilo title. But even if it's and it's always going to hang over the head that Taylor wasn't there and it kind of stinks. It, it's it's going to suck. So you did have some U.S. athletes go under the U.S. Virgin Islands. Do you see that being a long term solution or having people who are you know how in the Olympics they had like Olympic athletes of Russia who weren't representing Russia but they were Russian? Do you see some solution like that happening for U.S. athletes that want to continue to go to Worlds, or do you think that there will be a new affiliate put together like you said? I got to think there's going to be a new affiliate. So I, I don't know the game plan right now. So we were suspended. We are still the IPF affiliate though. So because we are still the IPF affiliate, a new affiliate cannot be formed. Therefore, if you want to compete at Worlds, you'd have to go to US Virgin Islands. There has been some calling for the USAPL just to, to step down and let a new affiliate rise up. And I can understand that, but there's also a business here. Like if you have a way to be able to kind of stop a new federation from coming and poaching half of your members that there's some, there's some, there's some business ethics there, depending on what your, your, your opinions are there. Um, but even within that, I mean, who knows? I mean, I don't think it'll happen, but who knows, maybe in a year they're going to work something out and something kind of comes together. Um, but I think most likely uh, there'll eventually be a new affiliate. I don't think the U S Virgin Island things will work long-term because two reasons um, one to be a continued USVI athlete, you then cannot compete in USAPL. You have to go to US Virgin Islands to their nationals, which in the comparison to our nationals is like a local level meet to then just easily win your weight class to then go to Worlds. And if you're like a Russ or a Taylor, I'm sorry, just then easily win your weight class again. Like it completely kind of diminishes the competitive atmosphere for those types of lifters. Now there's definitely some other weight classes that are unbelievably competitive. And like, I, I'm using the example, like Ashton Rouska, everyone's like, he's the best lifter in the world. I don't know if he would have beat Anatoly this year. He's got to travel over to Sweden. That might be close. I'm not gifting that to Ashton, even though I think uh, on each of their own separate occasions, Ashton likely is the better lifter in a world's format. He could lose. Um, but yeah, I don't think lifters are going to want to do that because our nationals is incredible. Um, they're they're going to have to give that up to then just do this USVI route. Um, and like I said, if people are kind of short-minded. Um, once nationals rolls around in June here, uh, probably everyone's going to be on the hype train for that wanting to do it. So... So that, that was kind of my next question is, 
for athletes who are looking for the highest level possible competition? Do you think that's just going to remain US nationals and that that, if anything, will come to supersede IPF worlds in the eyes of your lifters? Possibly. Um, I mean, that's kind of been the US spirit. Call call us cocky and arrogant, but we got the NBA, we got the NFL, we got the MLB. We've got, other than soccer, we've got most of the major sports federations in the world and people come there. Um, I don't necessarily think US, because USAPL is actually kind of implementing this thought that like we're going to pull international lifters over. Like they're actually open to international lifters coming. I don't think that will happen um, for the reason that I know a lot of international lifters are getting government stipends. Like they're getting paid to be able to go to IPF Worlds. They're not going to get paid to come over to US Nationals or go to these Pro Series levels events. Um, so I don't know. It, it, it kind of depends on how the USAPL handles things. Um, if they can step their game up and just continue to raise the level of raw nationals, I think a lot of US lifters may be okay with that just kind of being the highest level of competition. Because if you ask any of the US lifters who have gone to nationals and gone the world, outside of the esteem and prestige of being a world champion, raw nationals is the coolest and best meet in the world. Um, it, the atmosphere is better. Um, I'm not even arguing whether competition's better, just the atmosphere and the, the enormous amount of people and just what goes on is just incredible. So it, it's going to be kind of torn and it kind of depends on if USAPL can be able to kind of up their level, which is actually something I know they're trying to do. Um, we've actually two white lights, uh, the podcast I'm on is they've actually, they listen to it. Um, they've actually been having calls, um, talking about having to get their live stream and improving that and all these kind of things that they've been kind of listening to of improvements. So I know they want to, it's just, does it happen? Yeah. There's something about national level meets, even here in Australia before PA was booted out of the IPF and we had the biggest, um, drug test of federation. Our nationals was more of an event than it was when we did international meets because of just the number of people that you know there and the number of people that you know watching and in the crowd and all that kind of stuff. You just can't really replace it. So what I'm interested in and having sort of brought up Powerlifting Australia, when PA was first kicked out of the IPF and you know Rob Wilkes started World Powerlifting, I don't know how much of this was just bluff and bluster from him um, but, you know, he he certainly created a, a bit of a narrative that the IPF was on the way out and that there were other federations who were interested in leaving and everybody was dissatisfied with their management. And this, this would be sort of the first of many dominoes to fall. And eventually the IPF could be replaced by a bigger, better body. That obviously didn't really happen. Well, powerlifting kind of, you know, stagnated in as far as it, it went anywhere. With... The US at being suspended but not looking like going back to the IPF in the short term, do you think that that could actually be the first of that series of dominoes to fall? Or do you think the IPF will stay basically as is, just sans US? I don't know. Uh, I mean, I, th- I, I, I think there's always going to be some type of international federation because uh, this goes back to, again, like, I don't think people understand the 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 lack of a better word, the largeness of USAPL. Like a smaller country is going to serve much better with 400 lifters being under the banner of international competition. So they can actually have larger competitions or else it's going to be really hard to be able to grow powerlifting without kind of this ability to kind of bring together larger competition where the US in sense doesn't need it. It's nice to have it, but they don't need it for the fact of because of our talent pool and how many lifters we have. So 
I don't know. I don't I don't think the ITF will go away because I think there's enough countries that really uh, value that. And I think that are very IPF loyal. If they lose the, the U.S. market, though, and like even if a new affiliate comes up, and but people don't switch. And for the most part, the U.S. market stays with USAPL. It definitely, I think, will start a trend that will. Uh, I don't know if it'll it'll make the IPF go away, but it will start to reduce um, their appeal and draw for just for the reason that uh, they're going to lose uh, their, their biggest market. So Steve, you mentioned in passing about the pro series. I wanted to know a little bit more about how they're setting that up and um, the money that's involved and, and all those things. Yeah. So um, all of it's not been released yet because they haven't fully developed the entire system. It's kind of been, there's actually a, a he's a meat, he's our meat director in Virginia. His name's Saber. He kind of started it. Um, he's just a super rich dude who has a lot of money and quoting him, he'd rather give it to power lifters than give it to the government. So he hosts these like spectacular meets. Like, I mean, these look like these are probably meets that are better production than any national level meet in any other country. They're, they're incredible. Have you guys seen videos or pictures of it? I actually haven't, but I'll be looking it yeah. up after this. Uh, if you go to my page, my lifter just competed at one of his meets, just won the pro, or got second at the pro qualifier to Ashton, took home some money from it. They're insane. His live streams are insane. He has massive video walls that he purchased himself. He it's 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 incredible. He decided to start this pro this pro meet um, and give away twenty five thousand dollars cash. Which the argument there is, do people care about cash or not? There's a lot of people who don't care about it. There's people that do care about it. it I mean, it, it kind of goes back and forth on values there. Um, either way, there's obviously a very high level of competition going to that, and the USAPL saw that, and they saw that kind of has how they could expand outside of international competition. Um, from what I know, they plan to have like four to five pro meets a year. Um, I don't know that, they, again, they haven't figured out the full logistics of it, but uh, much like bodybuilding, they'll have like a pro card, which I think is a great thing. Bodybuilding has it right. They have a very good system for how they develop pros. People put a lot of esteem in having your pro card. And then you have the different level of meets. And then at the end of the year, you have the Olympia. The plan is, from what I know, that they're going to have these four or five meets that are pro level meets. You have your pro card, you can enter them. And from those, you can qualify for the Olympia, which would be the Arnold Classic, which only the, the, the most elite 20 to 25 lifters could go to, to then have this massive grand prize and really put everything in there. Because Larry Maley, the, the president of the USAPL, he's been pretty open. His favorite meet of the year every year is the Arnold. And he wants to make that like the, he wants to make that the big spectacle. And would this, would this kind of replace nationals for those lifters? Those no, nationals would be one of the pro meets. Right. So yeah. it would be one of those pro meets that could then, because right now nationals is what qualifies you for the Arnold. So that it's, it, we already have kind of a system in place. It would just be kind of changing the structure of what that means. So nationals so, would be one of the pro level meets. So the Arnold becomes like American Sheffield. Correct. Exactly. Okay. The, the national still is who's the best in your weight class. Arnold becomes American Sheffield. Okay. So could you see that concept being expanded internationally where like, you know, I'm going to talk about the NBA, which always amuses Alex, but you know how in the NBA there's Eastern and Western conferences and so on. You have conference finals and then you have the actual NBA final series of the winners, right? Well, could you see a similar thing happening where there were pro circuits run in different regions internationally with ultimately the top few lifters or whatever from all of them coming together for a super meet like the Sheffield or like the Arnold 
or something and that being a viable way to replace what's currently a bit of a clunky international competitive system? Yeah, I think so for sure. And I think um, this is something uh, that has been actually been discussed with the USAPL and why they kind of want to go this route. I don't think, I don't know if powerlifting will be like mainstream. Like it's, it's never going to be the, it's never going to be the NFL or NBA. Maybe we could reach some type of level of like a CrossFit, maybe. Olympics doesn't mean that. Most Olympic sports, no one cares about. And we only care about once every four years. And even within that, maybe we only care about a couple of them. Um, I would argue the IPF is not going anywhere towards mainstream appeal. They're just going towards the Olympics. I think the idea of a pro series and being able to expand that internationally is actually what could bring this more mainstream and actually get recognition and get broadcasted on larger media streams and stuff like that. Um, because it's a lot more appealing in that sense. I think, I think it's a lot more modern, um, and a lot more, uh, production friendly. I mean, just the fact of the matter is, is IPF worlds and the Olympics, if we went to the Olympics, they're kind of boring meets. No one's going to want to sit. If you don't like powerlifting, you're probably not going to sit down and watch IPF worlds with absolutely no music um and just a very calm demeanor you're going to want to watch this massive production um that is just just looks like it's it's wwe except or ufc except it's it's powerlifting um and i think that's more of kind of what the usapl is kind of drawing towards i also think that particularly in sports like powerlifting being able to emphasize personal narratives and you know rivalries and things between lifters not necessarily in the sense that like you hate each other but people's competitive histories and so on adds a layer of interest to it. Like because powerlifting itself in the moment is often not that exciting. Like watching somebody's opening bench press is rarely a spectacle, but understanding the narrative around things gives everything a little bit more significance and makes things more fun. I think something like a pro series circuit that narrows your focus and allows you to track people's career and their progression and so on probably just enriches the viewing experience for everybody. Yeah. And within that too, like, I mean, again, if we're talking outside of powerlifting and like people who don't, who would just watch it out of nowhere, it would be very hard to follow a week long competition of IPF worlds and or nationals like USA. That's hard to follow. Like there's 16 different weight classes, all this. It's hard to follow that. If, if we could narrow it down to like, here's just this one meet. It lasts three hours. It's the 20 best lifters in the world from the entire world in one country competing for one grand prize. Boom. That is very viewable by everyone. And like you said, within that, create these storylines behind it, these narratives, um, all this kind of stuff that kind of leads into it. Um, at the meet that just happened with the the pro qualifier, um, he was actually, he had all the top lifters come in the day before and do lifter interviews um, so that he could be streaming that on the video boards during the meet in between lifts and attempts like that. He actually created a walk-up, like you're walking up from like a WWE to the ring that he put the warrant platform on the opposite side of the venue and you had to walk up to the platform and the camera followed you the entire way. Like you were walking out to the ring again there. It's, it, it doesn't mean that's the coolest idea in the world, but it's a step in the right direction of like making it. And the meat only lasted like three and a half hours. That was a very viewable meat for anyone to go and watch, whether you like powerlifting or not. Yeah. I think, I think what they need to do with these kind of things is almost turn it into like a reality TV show where they film you know, you send in some of your training, you send some um, some interviews and all that kind of stuff and they play that like in the breaks while they're loading the plates and stuff on the live stream. And then you get like, you end up with this like 30 minute clip of the whole meet, which is like highlights, which would essentially be like an episode. Yeah. And I, kudos to SBD. They were trying to do that with Sheffield. 
they, it, that was likely going to be a really good meet and amazing meet. They were, they were doing lifter interviews. We saw some of those just never led to anything. I think that could have been a really good idea. Um, within that though, I, it's a one time a year thing. And one of my biggest issues with it, uh, Pete Spence actually listened to a podcast we did and didn't like when I said this, but it was okay. I, I don't know how sustainable these, uh, do you know, do you guys know who Pete Spence is? He runs SBD USA. Um, uh, I think he might've been in charge of the Sheffield. Um, it is extremely hard for these massive money meets to be sustainable being run by sponsors. Um, do you, yeah, you guys had, you guys had, uh, big dogs pro raw for a while. We have yeah. the ones pop up here, the showdown, the Kern, stuff like that. They all happen. And then they fizzle out after four or five years because the sponsors realize they're not getting their return on their investment and they can't be forking out all this money anymore. The single best way to have something like this is to be under the banner of the Federation that all the lifters are paying their dues to, uh, to allow. Um, if you go tell all of us, okay, we're going to have these kind of meets, but you got to pay five extra dollars a year, but we're going to have a $300,000 massive meat prize. Boom. Okay. Let's make powerlifting great. But that, that's the way to be able to make this sustainable. So I think having this, this overriding body to kind of govern that would be the best way versus a singular meet that's a sponsor meet. Yeah. But again, you sort of run up against this issue where like you spoke about how much fun um, these meets in Virginia were with the walk-ups and the, you know, um, the screens behind the lifters and so on. To get those really like progressive ideas, you often need disruptors or people who are coming from outside of the fold to do it. Whereas when you get people from within the fold, you often get people with a bit more of a traditionalist bent. And so it's very rare that you get somebody who's like, I'm going to take charge of a federation, which is this big established institution. And then change how everything's done. It's often the outsiders who come in and say, wouldn't it be more fun if we tried this? Because they've got a little bit less on the line. So well, that's perhaps you what... need the Federation to adopt the ideas of people who do things successfully. Well, you what know? you just said is the guy from Virginia, Sabre. He's, he came, he's actually, he's some cybersecurity uh, manager for the government. Um, and randomly, he's like, I just think it'd be really cool to host powerlifting meets. Like he had powerlifted, but it wasn't like something like he was heavily involved in. And the state chair moved. He's like, I'll take it over and do it. And then all of a sudden he started bringing in all these things that no one was doing before. The USAPL saw it. They saw this pro series idea and they're like, oh, that's cool. No one's ever done that before. Let's see if we can run with it to an extent. So I, I get what you're saying though. Having some kind of outside perspective. Um, I don't know if you guys saw it. Um, I was promoting on my uh, story, the Twitch stream for the Twitch powerlifting meet that had like millions and millions of viewers. That would be a great example of like people who like, it was kind of run in a way that like someone who had never really watched powerlifting before was like, I'm going to find a way to do a powerlifting meet. They did it and it was super fun to watch. So. Yeah. Did yeah. you guys do an uh, interview with Ben Rice? Yeah, we did. You go? Yep. Yeah, yeah. I listened to that. Yeah. It seemed like the meet was run extremely differently to how a normal powerlifting comp would go. Oh, extremely yeah. different. It, it like, it yeah. would not appeal to high level lifters in any means. Like literally sometimes it was an hour between attempts. Um, yeah, and then and then you finish squat and you have to do your bench opener in ten minutes or something yeah, like that. It, it was ridiculous yeah. in the sense of a traditional powerlifting meet, but in the sense of appealing to the masses, it was super cool. Um, I think there's ways to combine that where we could have high level lifters and appeal to the masses, but um, a lot of that comes down to one production, but two timeliness of things. Like none of you guys are going to watch a twelve hour basketball game um, unless maybe Alex just wants to watch LeBron. Uh, for 12 hours. I don't know. He possibly could. Um, 
But usually we don't. They they have time limits on games because we have a certain attention span. If you want to make a powerlifting meet uh, viewable, it needs to be two to three hours. So that people can have a single dose serving, watch it, and see all the best people. Not just like one person. They want to see all the best. They want to see LeBron and Anthony Davis versus KD um, and Harden. I'm not saying Kyrie because Kyrie's never going to play because he is who he is. But again, you can always... You know, when you have people who are unafraid to just do things for the sake of fun, you can you can do those things that are designed to be participational and catch an audience's eye and just showcase the fun aspects of a sport and bring in new people who, when they fall sufficiently in love with it, will want to pursue the sport in the sense that a traditionalist would as well. So I think one of the best ways to bring people into any any pursuit is just show them the most fun you could possibly have doing it. And once they've fallen in love with it, those same people will be the ones who, yeah, say, I want to do, I want to do a really traditional competition and compete at the highest level and so on. But they've got to love it first, you know? Yeah. So again, I think there's so much space for things like those those Twitch competitions that just showcase how much fun it is to lift weights and show a competitive spirit and get people participating and all of the things that that are great about low level comps. Yeah, for sure. So, um, and one thing I'll. I'm backtracking a little bit, but a, an important point to talk about like the sustainability of what's going to happen in the U S um, you guys know what the showdown and like the current is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, are you familiar with the USPA? The main, yeah, un- I mean, I know what the USPA is, but I yeah. don't know um, specifically. What everyone assumes because the USPA is the large untested federation in the U S that's, that's the big one. They're pretty much hand in hand, just as many members of the USAPL. The current and the showdown and all of these big meets on the untested side are not even the USPA. The USPA has no big meets. Their nationals is kind of okay, but kind of iffy. They dominate the local scene though. And that goes back to kind of why the USAP is doing what they're doing. Cause they know that dominating the local scene and catering to the local level lifters, which is the vast majority of people wanting to get into the sport, having a good experience there. And most people are going to continue to compete there is where it's at. And that's basically what the USPA does. Like, even though there's these federations that are bigger and, or you can travel to, to big dogs in Australia, they dominate everyone because they make sure that at the local level, it is the, that the lifters are treated just like national level lifters. Interesting. I want to I want to ask you a few questions or sort of have you part of a discussion as an outsider which is which is to discuss a little bit of what's happening in the Australian powerlifting landscape now. Um, and parts of this we'll probably have to talk about delicately because there's legal matters before the courts involved but powerlifting Australia obviously has fallen to pieces recently on the back of allegations of sexual assault against Robert Wilkes. That's the very short version of it. And that's occurred against the backdrop of now 18 months plus of rolling COVID restrictions in Australia, and particularly right now, three months straight in the two biggest states of complete lockdowns that have meant that competitive opportunities and things have been cruel. And that's come a few years after the, the exit of powerlifting Australia from the IPF and the split of drug-tested powerlifting in Australia between powerlifting Australia, which is now turning into a bit of a nothing, and the APU, which was sizable but never quite the size that PA was before it was booted. So there's been a lot of disruption, and what we have kind of seen is diminished competitive opportunities nationally and internationally, diluted competitive talent, and then now I think on the back of, on the back of these allegations against Wilkes, probably a bit of a deterrent for participation 
at the low level and particularly for women who were who I think in the last few years had actually overtaken men in participation rates in Australia. And all of that's sort of quite concerning. So for you, when you look at that, what types of what types of things would you like to see from an Australian powerlifting community that you think would sort of signal strength and potentially a positive direction? So I'll backtrack a little bit to why I think powerlifting Australia didn't work. And that kind of leads to my answer here as well. Um, because like the U.S. has been compared a lot to PA. Like if we do that, we're, the same thing's going to happen to us. I think the issue from an outsider looking into PA is there was one person that was the head of all of this. And it was like, it was, he was like, it was Robert Wilkes. He, he was the person. And so everything hinged on him. If something went wrong with him, everything fell apart, which am I, am I correct in saying that's pretty much what's happened now is as soon as exactly he beat happened, something, yeah. something happened with him, the allegations, boom, all falls apart. Um, versus like the USAPL, there's, there's a president, but like, he's actually pretty under the, under, under the cover. Like he's very involved, but like most he's, I don't think most people even know who he is that lift in the USAPL. Um, it, it seems to be more a banner of an organization as a whole catering towards the lifters, putting the lifters first and allowing them to be able to do what they do to expand it. Because the fact of the matter is, is like all these federations have limited budgets. Like they can only do so much they need. Like I'm going to use Russ or Russ or and his YouTube channel arguably is the single greatest tool for powerlifting in the U S um, I would say the same thing for like for powerlifting Australia is is allowing the the federation to not override the lifters because I felt like in some way as an outsider looking in Robert Wilkes overrode what the lifters wanted or what the lifters were going to do he was he was the man versus allowing a a body to be able to function to cater towards the lifters and allowing the lifters to drive the progress of the federation forward does that make sense yeah it does and I again without sort of without spilling things that have been told to me in confidence, I think there was some quite reasonable criticism of of the sort of managerial structure of powerlifting Australia. And there was a very large degree to which, I mean, we say was, it could well return to being the case, but powerlifting Australia was very much driven exactly by Wilkes. And it, it is, it was in some ways powerlifting Australia's greatest asset, um, but in other ways, the big thing that really prevented it from taking a lot of steps that probably could have progressed the sport as well. And so it was, you know, they were they were stuck in some ways between a rock and a hard place. So having a federation that was that was perhaps like perhaps stood on its own two feet without without relying on one personality and giving the lifters perhaps a little bit more power would be a good thing. I'm interested, um, I'm interested as well the one of the big consequences of the mass exodus from PA has been that people have been going back to the APU, which is our IPF affiliate. Um, and, and that probably means inadvertently an increase in unity within the powerlifting community in Australia. How much value do you see in unity? <clears throat> well, unity within federations, you know, like were the USAPL to split between people who wanted to just compete within the USAPL and to have another IPF affiliate do you think that that would diminish the the value or the quality of powerlifting in the States? Oh, 100%. Because on the untested side of powerlifting, that's exactly what we have. Even though the USPA is the biggest one, there's legitimately maybe 100 different powerlifting federations on the untested side. On the tested side, there's basically two. There's USAPL and then USPA has a drug tested side, which actually has picked up momentum, mainly because like 
it, it, they just have the, the availability of a local level. Oh, that's the meat close to me. I'll do it. Uh, but it really hasn't split because the best people still stick with the USAPL. So if there was that divide, yeah, it would suck because that's always been like the thing we've had on the US side is like, oh, we are unified on the tested side. The untested side, they're just all over the place. Everyone's competing where they want to. There's no unification. The best lifters don't even compete against each other. It's terrible. It, it, it benefits everyone to be unified, 100%. It's interesting from a coaching perspective as well. And I, I think about this as a lifter too. But from a coaching perspective, you almost get siloed, at least in Australia. That's very much how I feel, where because you interact mostly with people within your federation, it's not easy to go and coach at competitions for other federations if you you know, are a powerlifting Australia coach or an APU coach and so on. And you just interact far less with lifters and also coaches and things from the other federations. It kind of stifles your ability to grow when there's when there's all these different federations whereas when everything was under powerlifting australia i felt like i had connections with a larger portion of the community i'd say everything like as in pretty well all of the drug tested powerlifting was under powerlifting australia i felt like i had connections with more of the community do you feel that same way alex absolutely man and like when when the split happened um I was actually at the last competition. I competed at the last Powerlifting Australia competition under the IPF in Singapore. And basically since that weekend, it was very weird. Like even being at Powerlifting Australia meets, it was, there, there just wasn't the same um, feeling of community and inclusivity that there was before. And that actually got worse and worse and worse as the years went on. And it's been almost four years now. And I've, only in the last sort of two months since the Robert Wilkes allegations came ahead have started to feel like there was unity again. And like I've already signed up with APU and I'm already doing a competition in nine weeks. And I already feel as if like, um, you know, we have that inclusivity and unity back again. And like that's crazy to think because I haven't even been to a competition yet with APU. Yeah, it's very strange. So... You know, I used to be coached by Amir Fazeli of Adonis Athletics and Adonis now has five branches, I think. Um, and they all went to compete with the APU. There are still lifters who competed in PA who trained at Adonis, but on the whole, they went to the APU. And prior to the split, whenever I went to powerlifting competitions, the Adonis people were almost like a second family to me because these are all people who I trained with and knew quite well and so on. And so it was, it was something that I looked forward to, to have that opportunity to socialize with those people who I felt like I shared a connection with. And it's not that that connection was absent, but because we just had this split that felt quite arbitrary between where people chose to compete, I just didn't have the opportunity to exercise that social connection. And so I also am looking forward to hopefully some unity coming about from, from this split. There were also rules in place by Powerlifting Australia to basically limit who could go to their comps and it would be, you know, it, it almost felt weird when you'd see someone who was coached by an APU coach who didn't have their coach in the back room. Like they would kind of feel like they didn't belong and it was, mm -hmm. it was pretty noticeable and quite jarring. And I think like, yeah, having the ability to be able to attract more people and have everyone under the same banner again is going to be the best thing for powerlifting in Australia. Yeah, and I guess the the other thing is from a lifter's perspective, you could have people who were torn between their desire for very high-level competition. So, Steve, you were saying how 
within the US, probably the highest level competition that you'll experience is US nationals. But then you can go to worlds as a result of winning. Whereas within Australia, many of the best lifters who are winning nationals here were really doing that because they wanted to go and test themselves against the best in the world. So say Liz Craven would win her class in Australia and probably win best lifter almost irrespective, but then she'd be really fighting to try and get a medal at IPF Worlds. And if you have somebody like her who had very strong social connections with a lot of people who are within PA, um, you she's then torn between the opportunity to have the best possible competitive experience that she could in the APU, but in so doing cut herself off from a lot of the community that she was closest with in, in powerlifting or have the connection with that community, but cruel yourself the chance for international competition. And so that part of the that part of the divide has been, you know, a real tragedy on an individual level for a number of people, I think. And also the the competition weight class to weight class is so variable. Like there were some, you know, this is almost what you were saying earlier, Steve, about um, you know, you could take the top five at USAPL nationals and they'd be the top five at worlds. Like that that was almost the case. You know, in some classes, the top five in one weight class in APU would be the top five in the Nationals of PA and vice versa. And there was no, like, rhyme or reason to, like, how this would be set up. Like, you know, the 105 class, for instance, in Australia, literally the top five or six are the best in PA. And then in the 74 class, like, there's the best few are in APU. And there's no, like, there's no, you know, balance. So like, yeah, if, if you're someone who's joining a federation for competition, you almost don't even know which federation to choose because it's variable depending on what class you're in. So Steve, I want to sort of bring this discussion back to you a little bit. You hear all of these things about powerlifting Australia. USAPL has this, you know, sort of gray cloud hanging over its international future. Um, but you do think that connectedness within the powerlifting community is a very important thing. What avenues do you see to promote connectedness and unity within the community? That was alliterative completely unintentionally. Um, but what opportunities do you see to promote unity perhaps outside of just relying on federations? What are some avenues with which lifters can connect with each other? Uh do you mean like in the sense of like connecting as in relationship wise? Uh, I guess here, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm, I'll kind of see if I can come around to this question. So um, kind of talking about your issue. One thing I've worried about if we have a new affiliate um, and I think this is an issue you guys had a little bit too. Um, according to IPF rules, if you coach outside of IPF at a national or international level meet, you then are banned from IPF competition or the IPF affiliates nationals. Um, that's a that's a big deal in the U.S. because we have these untested meets that either one have banned lifters that were banned from the IPF, which we can't be at meets with them, um, or they have international competitors with Yuri Belkin coming over and that kind of stuff. And then, in sense, we would not be allowed to then coach at USAPL nationals. The good thing is USAPL refuses to enforce that rule. Um, there's actually uh, actually litigation and a lawsuit that happened. I forget I forget how long ago that actually bars that. That was an actual thing within powerlifting that someone sued because they were not allowed to be able to expand their business where they wanted to, and they were being blocked, and they sued. And so there's some precedent that that's not even allowed. So 
that's one of my reasons if there was a new affiliate, I'd probably bias towards sticking with USAPL because I do not want to be stuck with just being under one federation. Because that's something that's cool. Like for most of these, most coaches in the US, they, they bias a little bit more towards one federation, but we still intermix and we can go to meets and there's still some type of camaraderie there. So that would definitely stink. Um, what was your question again? How do I wrap around to it? <laughs> so what I was saying is how can we promote community unity? Well, I mean, that's basically by having one federation that we can all be under and not splitting us. And then having one federation barring or both federations barring each other from being able to flip flop between them, because that that's the issue is like, if, if you're going to block and say, I only you can only do this federation, you can't go anywhere else. That becomes an issue. And that, that's actually an issue I have with the IPF and why I bias towards USAPL is because like uh, USAPL would allow any lifter and or coach to compete anywhere they want and still come back where in the IPF you have to compete in the IPF. That's the only, the only option you have. So, um, and that'll be an issue too. I mean, like some people who are lifters and coaches, if they wanted to go lift in a new affiliate to go to worlds, well, then they can't coach all their lifters at raw nationals. And so there's this, there's this weird combination there where it, I, don't, I don't know, I, I'm not sure how it will go. I, I think more likely than not though, in the U S I think USAPL will win out and it'll be very hard for a new affiliate to take over for the reason that comparing to Australia, um, the resources it takes to have a 20,000 lifter organization would take years upon years upon years to build up to. Um, so if a new affiliate in the U.S. wanted to get anywhere close to the level USAPL was, it, it would take five to 10 years to get there. And they, they may never catch up where I think in Australia, it was probably a little bit easier in a two to three year span for the APU to catch powerlifting Australia just because of the, the size of it. Yeah. And then it, it was very slow to get off the ground APU. Um, and then once some of the top level lifters started to switch over because they wanted to go to worlds, like you said, a lot of them were coaches who were then taking their lifters with them. Um, and that's like, a, that's a huge issue that we've had here. We've had, um, famously two top level um, nationals competitors, competitors be banned a few weeks before nationals because they were refereeing at a, a novice competition and like enforcing that rule was just like ridiculous and just created divide and it's just unnecessary. So Steve, I, um, I kind of naively expected you when I asked about community unity to talk about you know, how we can all connect and support each other online or interact through different mediums like social media and so on. And I guess part of why, and bear in mind, I like know nothing about bodybuilding is I was thinking about bodybuilding and, you know, bodybuilding has a bazillion federations. Um, if you just say four or five letters and the last one is B, it's probably a bodybuilding federation somewhere. Um <clears throat> But in spite of that, it seems that there's a lot of sort of interconnectedness and admiration between bodybuilders of all stripes, maybe partly because bodybuilding is such a sort of training focused endeavor where competition is, is like a very rare and small part of a huge lifestyle, but they all sort of lean on each other for support and take ideas and are well-known and well-respected amongst each other. Given how much of a sort of lifestyle pursuit powerlifting is for so many people, could you see the community moving that way if we all if we all sort of felt that way about the hobby? Yeah, but I think that's because that's two reasons. One, as far as I know, bodybuilding doesn't ban you from doing what you want. That again, that's my that's one of my big issues is that if a federation then bans you from being 
related or in association with any other federation, I think that is only diminishing the growth of powerlifting. Two, even if there's all these different bodybuilding federations, everyone knows IFBB Pro is where you want to be. Like, that's it. Like, that, that's the top. You want to be an IFBB Pro, you want to win the Olympia. There still is there is still the Mount Olympus of what to get to. Um, but I think more so, like, it's, it's, it's allowed that, like, I mean, like, a thing that has created a little divide between USAPL and the untested side is because there's, before we were banned from Worlds, we still would somewhat stay away from the untested side because we didn't want to get banned from going to Worlds. Um, because that still was a thing. We'll always get banned from going to worlds. If we were to coach at an untested meet that had international lifters or a band lifter, if we were to coach at a national untested meet, those lifters and or coaches could not go to IPF worlds. Um, and that kind of kept us from wanting to go over to that side. And that, that created a little bit of a divide to where we couldn't cross over as much. And I just don't think that's right. I don't think there should be that divide there. Like I, I, these are all adult choices. If you want to be untested or tested, cool. Um, I, I don't think there should necessarily, necessarily, necessarily be that divide. Like, I don't think, uh, NBA players can't associate with so-and-so and then they can't be going to the Olympics and representing the, or in the, in FIBA. Does that make sense? Like, I, yeah. I don't hear about anything like that. Where like, a uh, uh, if, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, if you hang out with Pete Rose, you're not banned from the MLB. You can still be friends with Pete Rose. Um, even though he was banned from Major League Baseball, like it, probably, probably shouldn't be friends with Pete Rose, though. What do you say? Probably shouldn't be friends with Pete Rose, though. Yeah, that's possible, but that's that's my point there. Like in these other, like most of these Olympic sports, you can like you can still go talk to uh, a banned athlete and not literally be kicked then out of the. Olymp- I don't know. That, that that's do my guys, issue there. There shouldn't there should be a barrier when, um, to be able to communicate with other powerlifters. Do you guys remember when Ed Cohen was doing a seminar a few years back? And, and there Wilkes were people. Went. What's that? And Wilkes went. Is that what you're talking about? No. He did that, one in, no, did that's he do one in Melbourne? No, that's not what I'm talking about. But that, um, Ed Cohen was doing a seminar. I think it was in Australia. And people, there was like this rumor going around that if you attended it, you'd be banned from, I think it was PA. And obviously, like, that didn't happen. But Still, that's fucking ridiculous. Because Ed Cohen was banned from the IPF. Yeah, eventually was it? Did he get a lifetime ban? I like yeah, I didn't yeah. know because he, oh, really? he got popped. He got pop. He got popped and then got popped again. So he got a lifetime ban. Oh rip! Well, I mean, I guess that's what you get. But but like at the same time, it seems a little bit ridiculous at this point. I presume that his seminar wasn't like a a group drug use session. It probably was just discussing lifting and programming. So. You know, I, I don't see any particular malice in going and listening to him talk, but that's just me. Um, Steve, before we get on to some general chit chat, do you have any sort of parting thoughts on those topics that we've discussed so far? Um, not necessarily. I think I've said most things. I mean, I would I would love for a solution to be worked out because I think there is there. I love raw nationals, but I've always really found, I found the appeal in having international competition. I think it is really, really cool. And it's especially, I mean, like it's, I I get how it's even cooler for smaller countries, because like you said, like you'll have like a lifter like Liz Craven. She cannot have true competition until she gets IPF world. I think it's awesome that we can be able to have that where like some countries are going to have a little bit more inner or within nation competition, but be able to have all those people come out. is awesome. I just don't, don't know if we'll get there. And I, I think it's, partially because of the fact that USAPL and IPF are divided on what they want to do. 
um, and their values. But two, I mean, again, I'm biased. I don't like the direction IPF's going. Like, I don't care to like drive their prerogative to make sure single ply has a pipe dream of getting in the Olympics. Because I don't know if you guys agree, but like, it's a pipe dream. Like, and they're they're more like oh, yeah. they're about to kick weightlifting out, not add powerlifting. We um, did an episode well, about this. If powerlifting is added, China and Russia are going to dope the crap out of powerlifting, and then it's going to ruin it. And so, like, I don't want it to be in the Olympics. So, like. As, as well as like, why do we want single ply in the Olympics? Like that is that people are going to look at that and view that and be like, power thing is stupid. Why are these people wearing these suits and doing these weird things? I don't want to do that. Uh, yeah, it's self-defeating because the Olympics is such a potential advertisement for your sport. So at the very least, raw powerlifting looks like the things that people do in the gym. So it makes the training style appealing. Whereas single ply powerlifting, everyone's going to say exactly like this looks dumb and it's kind of boring. Like, and it makes no sense to me. Why, why would I ever train for that sport? Yeah. So I don't know if a good res, I don't think a good resolution is going to happen. I would love it if the USAPL pro series kicks off and all the other countries have a pro series and send their lifters over. I think that would be cool. Cause I would want some type of international competition. That is, that is a fantastic thing that we have. Um, I just think it, it could be done better and not under such a monopoly and dictatorship of what, of what I think it is. Well, fair enough, Steve. What's going on in your life, mate? You've got a holiday coming up. What else is news in the world of Steve Denovi? Nothing really. I'm boring. I coach. I take care of my dogs. I hang out with my wife. And yeah, we're going two white lights. That's been a lot of fun. Um, that's been growing a lot. Um, for those in Australia who don't know what it is. I mean, it's a podcast, but um, our goal is more of like a... Uh, uh, I don't know what word for it. We want to be like this, the ESPN of powerlifting in the US. It like, feels to me like you're a little bit more news and current affairs focused rather than speaking like deeply about conceptual training stuff. Is that fair? Yeah, correct. We're actually doing some of that though. It's to appeal to different audiences, but we're trying to be like the, the news outlet for powerlifting um, to be able to be able to have that like a talk show, be able to be breaking news, all that kind of stuff. So that's been a lot of fun. We've had a lot of opportunities um we've been getting flown out to commentate to a lot of meets all around the country there's just been a lot of cool things from that so um but yeah going to mexico next week um nice little vacation um obviously u.s has opened up a little bit more and mexico begs u.s tourists to come there so i'm, I'm in i'll go i could easily be begged into going to mexico right now <laughs> we're at an option so yeah look at that mustache wheel yeah i'd fit right in um no i'm very jealous of you all right steve final question for you while you're here you're wearing a Chicago Bulls singlet. I know it says Denovi on the back, but I have to ask, Jordan or LeBron and why? And then I'll just let Alex argue with you because I don't actually know. Why would you even ask that question? That's not a Bro, question. I don't know anything about basketball. I'm here, like, comes the, here comes the Chicago bias. All right, go on then. Chicago bias? Are you from Chicago? I, I oh I, yeah I've been from Chicago I don't even think it's a bias though like one one person six and zero in the finals and literally has done everything there could ever be in like half the amount of seasons almost because he retired for three years to play baseball because he got bored because he was so good and the other guy barely is that, is that why he retired twice or... as many championships as he does wins them and he is has that, is that why he retired or is it, other, is it other personal reasons what do you say is that why he retired or was it other personal reasons. Or was he uh, asked to leave by Stern? Which time? The first time. 
I think it was because of a, a midlife crisis of his father passing away and just wanting to go there. And I think he, he was pretty open about kind of being bored. Like I can see that with Jordan. Like it, I think he actually needed to retire for those three years to come back and win three more titles. If he didn't do that, I don't know if he would have won three more. Cause I think yeah, he, a lot of people did motivation and it motivated him to come back when people were like knowing that people were saying he wasn't the best in the world anymore. A, a lot of people use the, the, you know, the fact that he was gone for, and it was only one and a half seasons. He came back the second season and lost in the second round to the magic, by the way. Um, but a lot of people say, Oh, he would have won eight in a row if he not didn't retire, but that's completely bullshit. He needed the mental reset to come back and, you know, get that competitive drive going for the second three beat. I 100% agree. Don't disagree with that at all. I don't, and not only would it have been hard, he would have had to go against Olajuwon's Rockets, and that was not an easy team to beat. That would have been, probably been the hardest team for them to take. Do I think they were better in their prime than the Rockets? Yes. But in the sense of like after those three years and being burnt out a bit, no. So, yeah, the, the championship burnout's so real. And we've seen that recently with the Warriors, like that last year, they just, they just didn't have it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you know, LeBron. I, I think he's been – he has a bit more longevity because I don't know if he, – he has a different drive than I think Jordan or like a, a Larry Bird or a Kobe had. I think he has a different drive than them. Like he, since he's not a literal killer where he literally has to have something where he wants to just destroy and kill and have like some crazy motivation, um, I think he's since he's been more even keeled, he's been able to elongate his career um, to be more consistent but I think if he had that killer instinct, he'd also reached higher peaks. He'd have lower lows, but he'd have higher peaks. I don't know if, I don't even know if um, you could say that LeBron's peaks are necessarily that much lower than Jordan's peaks in terms of like actual output and talent. Um, I think the biggest difference is like you said, the personality aspect, like LeBron doesn't live a hard life. Like he's been married to the, to the same chick for, 15 years he's a dad he just stays at home takes care of his body his personal chef cooks him all his meals you know that's and he takes so, such good care of his body that is why he's lasted so long whereas jordan like you know he's out all night gambling smoking cigars drinking playing golf in the sun before playoff games and like had he not had such a difficult life in that respect potentially he would have had the same length of career as lebron he never really had health issues, though. I think he needed that because, again, it goes back to mentality. They're very different on their motivation and mentality. Like Le Jordan was literally obsessed with risk and like competition. Like he was obsessed with it. There was like this high he had to chase. So I think there was just a difference there. And that's, I mean, that's why I say it. Like if we had a playoff series between the two of them, I would take Jordan because one of them is literally going to murder the other one to win. Um, I would. Not I would also take Jordan. I would. I would also take Jordan in a. Like one game, game seven, fight to the death. I would take Jordan, but I think if you add up all of the accomplishments and if you look at the total skill set, the size, the athleticism, I think LeBron is better in more categories than Jordan is. I think LeBron is the better basketball player. I think Jordan is a better competitor. Eh, I mean. I can see where that comes from. There's, there's the, there's the one, there's the one little ten game stretch though, because Jordan played a different game. He, he, he altered his game to what the team needed. 
there was that one, like the 10 game stretch where he had to play point guard, where he averaged a triple double and was scoring like 35, 10 and 10 when he had to play point guard. And he decided that was the exact position he needed to play. I, as well as the fact that like at that point, like it was a different game. It was all about mid range game. Um, who would have known if he could have been the greatest three point shooter of all time as well, where LeBron has had all these years to develop a three point shot. And it's not bad, but he's not a good three point shooter. So uh, he's 38, 38%. It's pretty good. It's good. It's not great. Um, that's also partially I mean, because he takes, he's he, takes six, nine, two, seven. he takes he takes kind of stupid fadeaway threes versus being and, he, and he's six nine two seventy. Yeah, oh, I'm not denying physical specimen of him, um, but uh, I, I think Jordan is underrated in his playmaking abilities because he chose a different uh, uh, a route of what he needed for the team. And there is one big caveat with all of this. One of them played defense night in and night out. The other one only plays defense when he wants to. Yeah, I think since about since about 2014, LeBron's kind of conserved his energy on that end. But a lot, a lot of that is the offensive output. But a lot of that is also just knowing how to take care of his body, right? He's smart enough to know when he can take breaks on the court and still have juice for the fourth quarter. So I think that's actually – I actually think that's a positive in LeBron's favor is that he – had that ability to save himself for when he needed it. Whereas Jordan was just hundred percent all the time. That's why he had to retire twice. He didn't, so. well, he didn't have, I mean, well, you could say mentally he had, physically he didn't need to retire. He, he didn't, he retired the first time mentally. And then the second time it was kind of like this weird, this stupidity. I forget the got the GM of the bulls, the stupidity of that GM basically. Jerry, Jerry Krause, was like, yeah. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Physically. He never needed to. I mean, physically that dude never needed load management. He played 40 minutes a night. Um, had no issues doing it, going 100% pretty much all the time. So, yeah, I mean, but like he he only lasted 13 seasons. LeBron's going into year 19 right now, and he's the same guy he was seven years ago. Eh, last two years he hasn't been the same. Dude, he yeah, won the he finals is, MVP. He, is two, he won the finals MVP two seasons ago. He he still isn't. The, he is not the same player he was seven years ago, though. He's not the he same athlete because he said it himself. He is not a hundred. He is never going to be a hundred percent again because he's always hurt. He is at of all course. times. He's, His he's groin has been injured for a while. Well, I, as somebody who doesn't understand basketball, that's all been very illuminating. I'm going to give a couple of thoughts and just let you guys respond. I think one of the hallmarks of a truly great competitor in any sport or any endeavor is somebody who has a deep enough understanding of the game that they can adapt their play style or their skill set or whatever to the situation demands. So, you know, you had the example of Jordan playing point guard. You've got LeBron still achieving highly in spite of the fact that his body isn't, isn't working with him to the same degree. But in a game like rugby, like I follow, you look at, you know, somebody like Dan Carter, who is probably indisputably the greatest 5'8 of all time who went from being an incredibly explosive, fast athlete with an amazing running game early in his career to playing a much more a much more sort of even hand towards the later end of his career. But his game knowledge allowed him to be equally effective in both respects. When you look at the two players, who do you actually think is sort of the smarter player? Who do you think could do well no matter what? I think they're the, the two highest IQ players ever. So yeah. I... I I wouldn't say that one of them is particularly smarter than the other. I just think that they excel in different ways. Like I would say LeBron is the greatest passer of all time. And, you know, from that standpoint, 
it's incredible that he is third all time in scoring, given he's not a natural scorer. Whereas I think Jordan is more of a natural, more of a natural killer on offense. So I think it's just their their IQ. I would say is equal, but I think that the way that they use their IQ is different. I actually would say LeBron has the higher IQ. I think he actually does in the sense of like literal basketball IQ. I think if you were to have both of them coach, LeBron would be a better coach. Um, I think that's more because he's probably a better person than Michael. I don't know. I'm not saying person. I mean, because maniac. Again, Mike Michael's the the single biggest difference was the mentality between the two. Like when Michael Jordan decided he was not going to lose, like. It was over. Like you were done. Hmm. Like it was. It was over. Like he. There was. He just flipped the switch, and it wasn't even basketball IQ anymore. It was just a killer instinct that LeBron's never had, and that was the difference. Where I think LeBron could be on Michael's level for the same, for the sole reason that his IQ is higher because it makes up for lack of that killer mentality. Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's why I said earlier. If you if you add up all the skill sets and you compare like every single category. I think LeBron has more check marks. But I think if you need one game to be won, game seven of the finals, if you need that to be won, I think you pick Jordan. So I'll, I'll bring up one more thing because you brought up like the LeBron size. People always say, well, LeBron couldn't play back then or what, which is both. That's LeBron gutted. could pay back Absolutely. then. But I'd Absolutely also say if, if Jordan was playing in modern day, um, I think, it, I forget when it was, he didn't weight train forever. Because back then it wasn't a big thing. Like there, I mean, like it wasn't even in football in America. It, was, it wasn't even until like 1977 that they thought having muscle would help you be a better football player. And now it's just ridiculous. Um, even in basketball, that just started catching up until more recently. That a player should probably add a little bit of muscle and it'll help them. Um, I think if Jordan was playing in the modern day game, you would have just as freaky of a physique. Because athleticism wise, it was there. Just physique wise, he's not as imposing as LeBron. But I think that's largely because it wasn't until late in his career he ever started weight training. I think if you if you compare their physiques at eighteen, for instance, like LeBron's width of his shoulders and you know he's three inches taller, he probably was probably thirty pounds heavier at eighteen. I just think that there's a different ceiling that they can get to from a physical standpoint. I think LeBron's genetic ceiling is just considerably higher than Jordan in physicality. In physicality, yes, but then you got to add speed and explosiveness into it. Yeah, and to, like 2009, LeBron is probably the, the best athlete in the, ever. So I'm going to eject myself. I asked that question expecting like maybe two minutes of back and forth and then agreeing to disagree. We're now 17 minutes in. Well, now you're starting a new podcast, Stephen Alex Argue Basketball. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could do that all day, man. It's I good talk for about me. more than I can talk about lifting. I was going to say, I have a general fascination with things that I don't understand, but that other people are passionate about. Like, I just like letting them go. And I think this it's could cute. be a Will Berkman variety podcast episode, Will. It, it honestly <laughs> could. Like, tell me why I should care about Jordan versus LeBron. Um, but no, it's very interesting to hear. I do want to wrap it up, though, 90% because I really need to go to the bathroom. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just, I'm being honest with the people. That's what's going on. Steve, um, thank you so much for joining us. Before we let you go, please let everyone know where they can reach out to you for coaching, where they can find Two White Lights, any other projects you got on the way. We've appreciated you being here. Yeah, I mean, easiest thing, just go to my Instagram page, uh, at P 
PRS underscore performance. From there, I've got everything linked, whether it's my website, my YouTube channel, two white lights, all that kind of stuff. Um, I probably won't be accepting any clients for a long time. I might not take anyone in for a year. For, so for coaching wise, um, don't reach out to me. Um, but I put out a lot of free content, at least I try to, um, uh, to be able to satisfy everyone right now. Will already knows this. Uh, there are two houses being built across my street. And I'm about to blow my brains out because it is nonstop all day sounding like someone's pounding on my front door and I can't take it. So for people who have been wanting more Steve content, once those houses are done, I will start producing videos again. But until then, I'm trying to stay in my bunker and survive. Yeah, if you were going to reach out to Steve for coaching, um, he officially endorses Alex and I, so just reach out to us instead. Perfect. I'm cool with that. I, I love referring out to great coaches, so yeah, I, I 100% <laughs> recommend Will and Alex. There you go. That's bandwagoning at its best. All right. Well, thank you so much, man, for joining us. Um, you guys know me, Will at W.BerkmanP2. Alex at Alex Hayes underscore process. Thanks for joining us. We'll chat to you next time.